from six on two FM. Big thank you to the two Johnnies. It is Tuesday, the 15th of November, and this is Game On. Coming up this evening, Mark Langdon has squad news ahead of World Cup kickoff and tension in the Portuguese camp as more clips emerge from that Ronaldo interview. It's hard when you see people who was in the dressing room with you criticizing that way. Must hurt. It's not good. Yes, I did. But not hard. I'm not going to be more slim, I'm not gonna sleep bad because of the criticize, but it's not good to listen that. Disappointing. A little bit, yes, mm. disappointing. In cycling, Dan Martin went from most combative rider at the Tour de France to retiring early due to boredom. He'll reflect on a career as one of cycling's last romantics. And Dan Latour. Martin is Latour. going against Pierre Latour. Pierre Latour in the chase. Right in the slipstream of Martin. Martin whipped with over a kilometre to go. He's still going. It's a brilliant ride from the man who took the stage at the Dauphiné. Martin looks around. He thinks he might have it. Martin is there. Can he celebrate yet? Yeah, because poor Pierre Latour is tiring. It is going to be Dan Martin to win a stage at the Tour de France. And in racing, Dan Skelton will be chatting to myself and Ruby on his upcoming Cheltenham Gold Cup rematch, as well as making big calls as a trainer. When you are the boss, you, you've got to be very decisive. And when you're working as a part of a team and you, you're you're an under-manager, there's a little bit of a safety net involved in that. You can have an opinion, but you know you're not really going to be judged by it. You get judged as a manager of any sport by your results. So having the conviction to, to make a decision, stick by it, and also be brave enough to admit you got it wrong at times, and that's the big difference in almost being a kid to being a man. If you want to get in touch, you can text us on 51552 or tweet at GameOn2FM. GameOn on 2FM. Yes, hello there. Good evening. It is uh, great to have your company on this Tuesday evening. And Ruby Walsh, it's great to be in your company. How are you, sir? Great, Shane. Yourself? Very well, very well, very well. Um, lots to get through to this evening. Really looking forward to that chat with Dan Martin and uh, and Dan Skelton as well, the two Dans, uh, as well as Mark Langdon, because that World Cup is only around the corner. And I suppose, Ruby, as is per tradition on Game On, we always have a couple of news headlines. And unsurprisingly, they're dominated by uh, by soccer, really, today. Before we chat about the World Cup, Ruby, uh, I did notice the Irish Cabinet has signed off on a bid for Ireland to be one of the joint hosts of Euro 2028. The Football Associations of Ireland, Northern Ireland, England, Scotland and Wales will now submit preliminary proposal to UEFA tomorrow. And if successful, the Aviva Stadium and Crow Park would potentially share seven games. A more detailed plan needs to be finalised by April, UEFA taking a decision in September next year with Turkey, the only other rival to host uh, Euro 2028. So that could be some brilliant news, Ruby. Yeah, but how many times have we done that before? I know, but I'm 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 positive about it. No, it could be brilliant. I'm taking the the glass half. I thought, we had, I, I, I thought that story was sorted. I didn't realise it had to be soft signed off on them by government and go somewhere else. And oh, here we wait till I thought we were getting one of those tournaments a while back. They were building roads and everything, and no, no, no it's, it's always weird that there's there, there seems to always anytime this this goes. Uh, comes up in the media that some councillor from Galway or somewhere is, is creating a new stadium out west or somewhere down in Kerry are getting a new stadium and everything else. Um, so yeah, the, the 
deadline for, for the government approval is tomorrow. So it had to be submitted by today at the latest. So it, it's, it's submitted, it's in there, and hopefully uh, we'll be seeing a bit of international football, uh, international tournaments coming to Ireland. Um, in the meantime, Ruby, the FEI has made clear its position around human rights issues and the protection of migrant workers in Qatar, the World Cup host country. In a statement released today, the FEI say they corresponded with Amnesty International head of the tournament and has stated clearly its strong belief that football can be a positive force to highlight inequalities in society and should be a catalyst for real positive and sustainable societal change. Now I know yourself, uh, Marie and Alan had a very in-depth conversation on this. It was a really, really good listen for anyone who has missed it. Listen back on the on the podcast. But um, that FEI story brings me onto a story I saw on The Guardian today, which I'd love to pick your brain on, Ruby, because the head of football's world governing body, FIFA, issued a plea in Tuesday today for a ceasefire in the war in Ukraine for the duration of the World Cup calling for all sides to use the tournament as a positive trigger to work towards a resolution Gianni Infantino speaking during a lunch with leaders of the G20 major uh, economies on the Indonesian island of Bali said the month-long World Cup which starts in Qatar on Sunday offered a unique platform for peace I mean I'm I was just in awe that this was was raised really and that was his viewpoint I mean should I should I not be surprised anymore I don't know, but uh, look, it'd be great if you think a World Cup could bring about a ceasefire uh, between Russia and the Ukraine, but I'd be equally amazed if it does. Does yeah. football really think it's that much say? No. I, unfortunately, I don't think it will be, and everything else that is surrounding that World Cup. Now, there will be a very um, special World Cup preview on Thursday um, here on Game On. Marie will be heading that one, so that's certainly uh, one to look forward to. We'll be diving into that very, very shortly. Uh, just briefly, in Rugby Ireland, uh, rugby captain Johnny Sexton trained with the squad today and provided he also comes through training tomorrow. He will be declared fit to start this weekend's test against Australia. Jack Crowley is ex- expected to provide backup from the bench and is in line to earn his second cap. Ross Byrne, of course, called up to the squad late uh, last night as cover. Jimmy O'Brien will uh, complete the HIO process today and is expected to be available to train tomorrow. However, what was probably more eye-catching, we're probably not going in the right order, Rory McIlroy's comments. He's he's laid it in. Laid it in on Greg Norman. Has he laid it in or have he got them? Played them there? Because I... I thought there was as many questions to be asked as there probably was answers given here. Okay, okay. You might be a bit more cynical. Okay, well, here is Rory McIlroy chatting to Greg Allen uh, about Greg Norman. And you said that Greg Norman has to go as the chief of live, so to speak, before, as you've put it, the adults get around the table and sort this out. What do you mean by that? I just think he's become too divisive of a figure. I I, I think there's there's no hope of of dialogue going forward if, if he's involved. I think he was brought in to be a disruptor. He has disrupted the game in a big way. Um, but I think now it's time for, like I would, I'd love to, to play regular golf against Cam Smith and Dustin Johnson and, and Brooks and Bryson and all the guys that have, that have left. Like I, I, and I'm not saying, I mean, we have a plethora of amazing golfers on the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour, but I think the game is healthier as a whole if we're all playing together. So Greg's done his bit. He's been disruptive. He's been divisive. But now I think it's time for, you know, he's done his job. So I think it's time now for, for, for someone to come in and, and, and for cooler heads to, to talk about this. And, and if, if that happens, 
I think the game of golf will, will hopefully end up in a, in a better place than it is right now. That's straight shooting, Ruby, no? It is, but is it healthier or stronger if you have all the best players playing in the one tour? Stronger would be the word I would say. Probably that makes it healthier, but it becomes a stronger product if you're selling one that involves the top 10 or the perceived top 10 in the world rather than a splinter. Uh, Greg has been you know, disruptive and divisive. So who instructed them to be disruptive and invisive, divisive? Mm. And to those people that instructed Greg, are they going to push Greg out of the way to have talks? Do they even want to have talks? I don't know. I thought it raised loads of questions. I thought there was... Um, Obviously, a hell of a lot more going on in the background that we're not aware, aware of that Rory was even uh, thinking of making those statements. Yeah, no, very much. I think it's a, a developing story. But fair play to Greg Allen for, for getting that out of Rory McIlroy because he has been calling for mediation, I suppose, and this is one of the first possible steps of many to be proactive as opposed to But what's to the mediation? So those players, are Liv just going to walk away and give it all up? Are those players going to go back? Rory's open the door to welcome them back, maybe. Mm. Or is the door open to a completely new tour where it's not the PGA or it's not Liv? Is it something completely new? Well, I don't where do you meet in the middle? Yeah, it can never go back to the way it was. I think it's the, the landscape of golf is changed now because of this. And, you know, like it or lump it, that, that is the case. People are pro-Liv, people are anti-Liv. It's, it's here and it may not be here to stay it may be here to stay but either way I don't think it's going to go back to the status quo there's going to be um, mm. big some... changes it'll be interesting to see what happens very much so. I read a lot more into that anyway I thought there was a hell of a lot going on yeah well no there definitely is and listen I, I think it's a it's a much bigger topic than a one minute and 17 second interview between two certainly. fellas who are not, not very much about golf <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about something you know a lot about now Ruby <laughs> yeah let's switch back to the horse racing at least I can uh, be con- I can have conviction when I'm bluffing when well, I'm that, that about makes horse one racing. of us <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're, good at, you're good at bluffing you, you, you get yourself a long way you just uh, at times have gone one, one remark too many um, but look I'd say we're going to be joined on the line now by Dan Skelton from Warwickshire Dan who we're halfway through the national hunt season a month into the winter season Dan's been having a great se- a great year so, thus far he won the slur chase on Sunday with Nubay Negra and this weekend will run Protectorat against Henry de Bromheads at Plutar in the Betfair chase at Haydock Dan how are you? Yeah Grand Ruby you? I'm great, thank God. Dan, your horses are flying, as I said. Nubanegra Sunday, you're the winner in Exeter Monday, two in Hereford this afternoon. If we go back before we go forward, it has been a good start for you. Whether it be even, Proshima, there was a great start to the season. Yeah, it's been good. Uh, the few of the bet, like the few of the graded horses, we've obviously took took aim at the odd race or two, and we've given them plenty of work at home. But the few of the novices, we've just left them. Sort of, sort of come forward for the season and they're having their second runs now and they're feeling the benefit of it so we're doing things a little differently this year but I have to say it was a bit frustrating in October knowing that you know we weren't quite there but I have to say now we've got to this time I'm particularly happy with them so yeah it's been a bit of a slow start for us than normal and obviously when you're watching Paul Nichols disappearing off into the horizon with winner after winner it gets a bit frustrating but I have to say I'm quite happy the way we played our hand so far. You say it changed things this season. Why? Because I want to get better and only a foolish man carries on doing the same thing expecting different results. Um, we've climbed up the table but we're still not at the top and we've got some nice horses and we've got a great team. When you look at what, you know, especially Willie has, you know, there's a long way to go. 
um, you know, there's always a, a dog with a bigger bark. So you've got to you've got to keep aiming high. And you know, we've we we we're we're, we're ambitious, um, and we've tried things differently this year, like I pointed out, in the expectation that they'll last a little bit longer into the season. Like those novices, it's very important to make them last into the spring if you're going to have any hope of any hope of competing in the in the big festivals. So let's see let's see if the theory bears out into reality. Well, there has to be a theory, and when you, as an English trainer, have looked at the strength of what is happening here in Ireland and how they come to the big spring festivals and are, are dominant, does that I won't say infuriate you? Does that spark you? Does that drive you? Does that make you want to be more competitive? Oh, of course, yeah. You'd be, you know, you wouldn't be a competitor if it didn't spur you on, and you wouldn't be human if it didn't, you know, not I wouldn't say enrage you, but if it, you wouldn't be human if it didn't get under your skin a bit. And it's acceptable, you know, sport at the end of the day, you're allowed to be disappointed when you get beat. You're allowed to be disappointed if someone's doing better than you. I don't think you can chuck your toys out the pram and and get, you know, over upset, over upset or animated. But you know, the truth is, the Irish system. Um, which we've highlighted for some years now. The Irish system lends itself to the springtime more than the UK system, um, and the you know the sort of spotlight that Willie especially shines on Cheltenham makes it particularly hard to win the graded races there. And then you come along with you know Henry and Gordon and others, of course. But you, know, you just look at what Henry's sort of gathered over the past four years or so um you know that team of of elite superstars you know that that's that's something that we all crave so we're well aware where the power lies if you like at the moment but you can't just stamp your feet and you know wish you're in that position you've got to do something to change it and and, and make it happen so your investors, your owners, did they take much persuading to say, look, guys, we're going to go a bit slower early in the year, even if we forsake a few good pots because we want to try and compete at the bigger ones? Were they up to up to the change as much as you were? Yeah, they were. And the, it was kind of easy this year because the ground has been so quick. So there's actually a lot of them you couldn't have run anyway. Uh, so it kind of just went hand in glove this year now it mightn't be so easy another year but if we've got the evidence and this year goes well we've got the evidence to back that up you know going into the the following season or the season after then i think it's going to help a lot the other thing we're doing very differently now is we're, we're making or trying to make the best of of young horses that we've got because going to these boutique sales and spending these telephone numbers on horses is not something that you know everybody can do and we're in we're in that category we can't go and sort of buy all the top lots all the time so you've got to find a new way of making your horses it's almost gone a little bit back to the old school in the uk i feel that a lot of trainers are going back to store horses and having to make their own horses um it requires significant patience you can't be in a rush if you want that to happen so we've just got to we've had to take a different look at things because trying to compete at uh, the top end, you know, with a fifth of the yeah, sorry, five uh, percent of the share, it, it's just not going to happen. So you've got to you've got to think outside the box, really. It does. You'd mentioned the ground being a, a way that allowed you to be a bit slower early in this season. Did the ground teach you anything new about Nube Negra on Sunday in the slur chase? You had to change tactics with only three runners. Does that change the way you see Nube Negra going forward into a Tingle Creek 
Will you revert no, he won't, and he, drop him in? Or would you think, hmm, maybe we can ride him handier? No, we wouldn't, we're not going to run him in the Tingle Creek. We'll we'll leave it and go to Kempton, I think. Um, we've been to Sandown a few times and he's just not performed his best there. If you actually look at this horse's races, when the times are sub four minutes, that's when he's at his best. When the times start stretching beyond four minutes, that's when he when when stamina really comes into play. That's when he's not as effective. He is a very very fast horse, um, and the quicker the race can be over, the better basically. So I think Kempton lends itself to him. We didn't learn anything at, at Cheltenham other than that. You know, if he's in a if he's in an ordinary contest, you can make the running with him. I think you're much better off holding on to him. He's a horse with speed. Use that speed when it's necessary. Um, I, I just got to have him at his best for for Kempton, and then we'll get him right again for Cheltenham. And the best of luck with that. But it all looks towards this weekend. If you or we didn't learn anything new about Nube Negra, what are we going to learn about Protectorat, and how are Dan and Harry Skelton going to go about beating Aplutar? Um, we're going to give it our best shot. I think I've got him as best. I think I've got him the best I can have him. I don't think there's... I've left, left no to- stone unturned with him. He's been away three times. He's been to our grass gallop, which we have just 10 minutes up the road here. He's been there twice. He's been for an away day as well. You know, he, I haven't... I, I, this is this is his first and big important target. So I've not looked beyond the Betfair chase. Um how are we going to beat Aplutard? Well, we're going to struggle, as the betting <laughs> suggests. But it's a race, and it's a different it's a different race course. The ground could be heavy. That definitely, sort of, the, in terms of ground, regardless of ability or, or, or performance figures, the softer and heavier the ground, the more productive Protectorat is. There's rain due most days up there. You know what Haydock can get like. Oh, so, yeah. And like I said, I, I've got this as this as the big one. Um, you know, if, if the reigning Gold Cup team are thinking, well, we'll go to Haydock, but we just leave, we'll just leave a bit left because we want to go to the Savills and obviously we've got the Gold Cup in mind in really heavy ground. That's our. That could be our advantage. Now I'm. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how prepared Aplutard is. He's obviously going to be well prepared. Is he absolutely to the to the second? I don't know. I, obviously, Henry's not going to tell us that. Um, but our, our chances that we we get him when we're at our absolute best with with nothing sort of not nothing left to work on. That's not that's not a great that's not a great thing to say, but when we have left no stone unturned and the ground goes heavy, that perhaps gives us a better chance than if the ground was just good to soft and you know, you you're sort of going around there trying to trying to play a speed, you know, a horse with such with such a devastating turn of foot. So look, no matter how much rain they have, we're not gonna start favourite. We're not we're not fooling ourselves into thinking that we're gonna be the ones to beat. Um but we're we're not going there thinking oh, it'd be nice to be second. What you are telling us, though, is that if it's wet in Lancashire, don't forget Protectorat. There's a big card in Haydock, Dan. You obviously have get a tonic in the £100,000 handicap hurdle. I noticed in your stable tour early in the week, you gave him a tidy mention. Yeah, wouldn't be missing her now. She's very well, well, I wouldn't say very well handicapped, but she's quite favourably handicapped there. She was behind Marie's Rock, who went on a 1-2 graded um, grade 1s 
after she just got the better of us at Warwick. So she's definitely improved as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to think she'd be very competitive. And a quick one before we let you go. Sir Alex Ferguson is involved in Protector at if all goes well. Shall you be brave enough to ask him what he thinks of Cristiano Ronaldo? No. <laughs> I don't think anyone's brave, that brave, really. <laughs> no, but I know you've got his number, so you could ask him if you want. I just thought maybe if Protector out won the Betfair Chase, beat a Pluto, you're having a, a drink in the owner's room celebrating, it might be, you know, it might just go up a conversation. You can come back on next week and tell us what Why would you ruin? Why would you ruin a lovely day? Just, you never know you always have to ask the interesting questions Dan I hope the weekend goes well for you thanks a million for taking our call Sheer Shane we're going to take a quick break Game On Football Now you are very welcome back to Game On I tell you it was a pity we had to take a break there because it would have been the perfect segue into our football chat asking Dan Skelton would we ever be brave enough to ask Alex Ferguson his thoughts on Cristiano Ronaldo would you, would no. you ask him would I ask him? I think I would, yeah. But I don't have to train for him, of course. I, don't, I, I won't be sending him a bill at the end of next month expecting him to pay it after asking him his thoughts on, on the question. So, I mean, probably a bit harder for Dan Skelton. But we shall ask Mark Langdon, will we? We shall. Mark uh, Langdon. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'd, um, I also don't have um, any, any bills to send out to Sir Alex, so um, I, I can uh, speak freely about Cristiano Ronaldo. <laughs> that's hard what your journalism. that's what we want that's what we want <laughs> um, yeah I mean he's somebody of course that did and, and all, was always very ruthless um, around journalists and you know he had the complete command um, of Old Trafford and the training ground and the press room and, and everything really and I mean, he, look, he absolutely adores Cristiano Ronaldo, um, Alex Ferguson, but I would imagine, and I, you know, it's hard to speak for somebody else, but I would imagine even he will have been disappointed with the way that Ronaldo has behaved, not only this week, but for, for much of the season. I know, Ruby, not to harp on about yesterday's show, but yourself, Marie, and I had a good chat on, on Cristiano as well, but I suppose developing the story and now the latest pictures um, coming from the Portuguese team meeting up for the World Cup, which I'm sure many people have seen across um, the news and, and social media and, and, and so on. So Portuguese football journalist Pedro Sepulveda has been speaking to Sky Sports about the video released by the national team in which Bruno Fernandes and, and Cristiano Ronaldo appear to have a frosty exchange. So we've gotten to a stage now where we're trying to read body language and see what's happening. Now, this journalist's uh, explanation was the national team put out images without sound on social media. The images look cold because Ronaldo and Bruno Fernandes see each other for the first time. They are not smiling. Ronaldo was the first to arrive at the national team camp while Fernandes was the last despite both playing for the same club. So Ronaldo made a joke to Bruno Fernandes asking him if he came by boat and not by plane. So that was the only thing they were talking about. There is no problem between the pair and both of them are focused on the World Cup. Right now he doesn't have to deal with the English media and he doesn't have to be in Manchester. So this was an all-in for Ronaldo because he feels he will perform well at the World Cup and then get a move in January. Now, I don't know if that reads as a impartial journalist, Mark, in your opinion, or is that more of a PR statement? It, I mean, it felt like a PR statement because, I mean, Bruno Fernando just doesn't laugh at any point. You know, like if he sort of misheard or not heard what Ronaldo had said, then you kind of would smile afterwards, wouldn't you? Um, that didn't happen. I'm sure that Portugal will be doing everything they can and the power that Ronaldo has in Portugal is just astonishing really um, and so I'm, I'm sure that he you know, will be trying to pull everybody together and even if Bruno Fernandes was um, disappointed once it comes um, to the World Cup I'm sure they will um, you know, rectify it the key question from just a, a Portugal and Cristiano Ronaldo point of view is whether he's 
a hindrance or a help to their chances of, of going far at the World Cup because they've got so many good, young, attacking, vibrant forwards. Uh, Rafael Liao, one of those that's doing so well at AC Milan. Shell Felix, less so um, at Atletico Madrid, but I, I still think he's a special player. And there have even been a, the odd call for, for Cristiano Ronaldo to be dropped from, uh, from, from the Portuguese starting lineup. I don't see that happening, certainly not at the start. But I, I think you could make a, a, a definitely a valid claim for saying that he's not one of the best 11 players in that Portugal team anymore. And I, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that Bruno Fernandes tends to play better when Cristiano Ronaldo is not on the pitch. I mean, I think that's been noted by a lot of Manchester United fans uh, you know, over the last 18 months or so. It will be interesting to see how it gets on. Portugal, the World Cup, it starts in well, England are playing in six days' time. They play Iran. And Sadio Mane playing for Senegal. He's going to miss the first game, or of course, couple of games, Mark, is he? Yeah, it sounds like that he's going to miss at least the um, the, the, the first two games against Netherlands and Qatar, um, which would be absolutely, you know, just such a big blow for the World Cup for Sadio Mane for Senegal. He's he's adored in um, his homeland. You know, he, he pours a lot of money um, into the country, helps in whichever way that he can to sort of you know raise the profile of the country, raise funds for those that need it. Uh, absolute talisman for his, his country and. Um, I still, I still think that they've done the right thing in, in picking him because you know, maybe he can't play in either of those two games against Netherlands or Qatar, but if he's available for that Ecuador game, the, the final group game, that could be the, the biggest one uh, of the lot. And he, We saw this with Senegal in the Africa Cup of Nations. Ismail Asar, who plays for Watford, he wasn't available for any of the group stage and then came back for the quarterfinals. And I think if you've got a 26-player squad, there's definitely room within those 26 to take a gamble on somebody, um, particularly when he's important as what Mane is to Senegal. And the shame is that Senegal, really good defensively, Edouard Mendy in goal, you've got Koulibaly at the back, they've got some solid midfielders as well. It's just that sprinkling of stardust in the final third, you know, someone like Mane, that can make the difference between you know drawing a game nil-nil that, that you're expected to win and actually finding the, the winner. And you know, that might be a problem in that second game against the host Qatar. Mark, I know you'll be back uh, joining us uh, on Game On on Thursday for a very special World Cup preview show and you'll be uh, digging into all of that. And I do want to get to how the European leagues are standing because I know the majority of our listeners will probably be aware of how the Premier League has finished up. But before we chat about the uh, the leagues themselves, just how messy do you think the whole political situation is going to be? And I suppose that's a very loaded question, but just, <clears throat> excuse me, in terms of Gareth Bale insisting he would have no problem um, firstly completing all three of Wales's uh, group games in the space of nine days and given the wear and tear going into this uh, tournament and, but he said he recognised the importance of wearing the one love captain's armband to shine a light and discrimination in Qatar whereas France goalkeeper Hugo Lloris uh, will not wear a rainbow coloured captain's armband at the World Cup in Qatar well he's hinted at that as, as much as, as reports are going so far leading up to the World Cup uh, the defending champions are one of 13 European na- nations to sign up to the One Love campaign against discrimination but FIFA rules of course prohibit teams from bringing their own armband designs to the World Cup like this it's a recipe for disaster it is um, I mean I think um, Hugo Reese's comments were 
a little bit messy um, in, in my opinion because he, he went on to say that, you know, when foreigners come to France, um, we expect them to, um, you know, behave as we do. And so if you're going to another country, kind of, you know, do, do, do you have to um, offer them, um, you know, the, the, the same respect? I think that it changes when it's something um, that lacks the inclusivity of something, you know, like just basic human rights. And, um, you know, that there's a big difference between that and, um, you know, um, fitting into to other parts of culture. So I, I think that, that I think Larice maybe could have answered that question better. But I also think that we're asking an awful lot of, um, of footballers, um, you know, to to understand the political situation, um, to, to, to do more. I mean, it's, uh, to, to me, it's one for politicians and um, for, FIFA, you know, for people at FIFA um, to sort out rather than um, you know, just a footballer who wants to go there and concentrate on trying to win the, the biggest um, you know, competition that there is um, around. And so um, I, I think that Lloris should have answered the question better, but I also don't think he should really be in the position that he's being asked these kind of questions because um, it is more for, like I said, the people that awarded it to Qatar, um, you know, the politicians that are doing um, deals with, um, you know, this country, with Qatar or Saudi Arabia on a daily basis, um, you know, so um, it, it, I think it's very difficult for, um, you know, any of the footballers to have the right answers um, to this but it's going to be the same for the next month or so and I suppose all you can really hope for is that um, you know light is is shone um, on, on these issues and that the country can, can come out of it in a better place you know in four or five weeks time I don't think it will I don't think that it will, will change that much but um, you know, it's not going to stop the fact that, um, you know, the World Cup is there and, um, you know, the, the, the players and managers are going to get themselves into and, and trip up, I think, at times. Gareth Southgate's already, um, you know, said, I think, the wrong thing over um, sort of the, those that have been building the stadiums. And so, um, you know, it, it's difficult and they're not used to it, are they, um, you know, footballers and, and coaches? And um, they are really out of their comfort zone um, when, when it comes to answering um, something that's much bigger than, than just football. It most certainly is that, but we shall move on to the European leagues just to let you all know how they're going. In La Liga, Barcelona, two points clear of Real Madrid, 37-35. to 35. They've only dropped five points, 14 games played. Barca in a good place? Yeah, they are. Yeah, I mean, obviously getting knocked out of the Champions League was... Uh, uh, a real setback for them. It was a very difficult group in with Bayern Munich and, and Inter. I still felt they should have come out of it and that they're a better team than Inter. But at least, um, you know, domestically, they, they can be pleased with their performances. And they did lose the Clasico against Real Madrid. For them to sort of jump above Real uh, is a big effort for them. In the last game, Lewandowski was sent off in the first half and they still managed to come from behind away from home to win. And they will expect to get better as the season goes on because this is a new team that's put together over the summer. Real Madrid, uh, on the other hand, you know, look like on paper the much more solid outfit, uh, kind of improved on, on what they um, sort of had last year when they were European champions. So the fact that, that Barcelona have, have gone clear of Real Madrid, I think, is a, a big deal, particularly seen as it was only a few weeks ago uh, that there were big question marks over whether Xavi would actually stay in the job after that they went out of the Champions League early. 
in France then PSG uh, expectedly uh, leading league on by uh, five points but perhaps unexpectedly Lens and Ren are second and third but uh, I do want to ask you about the Bundesliga before Ruby I know has a Serie A question to pose to you um, Bayern in front uh, leading the way 34 points Freiburg uh, second on 30 Leipzig 28 Eintracht Frankfurt 27 but in fifth place this is what I want to ask you because Union Berlin they're, they're the hipster's choice these days Mark it was Dortmund then it was St. Pauli now it's Berlin and they were leading at one stage but now they're fifth they, they were um, yes yeah, so, I mean, Union in terms of um, I think the, their style of football that wouldn't necessarily be for, for the hipsters it's, <laughs> it's, it's a throwback really quite direct and robust they haven't got much of a budget but you are right I think in that they, they've kind of warmed the hearts because this is a team that came up a couple of years ago um, and is against kind of modern football if you like you know this, this was a team where the fans literally helped to build the stadium and sort of keep the repairs going when they were in the lower leagues and there was a really touching moment when they returned to the Bundesliga and that their supporters were holding up pictures of loved ones that had supported the club and sort of um, passed away before they saw them play in the Bundesliga and I think from that moment on um, you know that they have been sort of everybody's second team in Germany and a lot of people that are interested in European football have followed their um, yeah, quite remarkable rise up, up the standings because first season looked like they were going to be relegated survived now they're sort of pushing on nearly made the Champions League last season they were top earlier on for anybody that's interested in sort of the underlying sort of metrics like expected goals they're doing they're doing absolutely terribly on that but they're, they're doing really well uh, where it matters at least at the moment in terms of results and long may it continue because um, you know I, I think it's great that a team that small can be above Borussia Dortmund um, you know halfway through the season and for those of us who don't speak German English, that is Union Berlin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and Sorry, Napoli. this is my club brugger. You're pulling me up yeah, again oh, on it, my, Ruby. I'm, I'm a traditionalist. Just, just stick with the English part, will you? Um, in the in Syria, Napoli, eight points clear of AC Milan. Jose, you won't blow this. No, I mean, Napoli are, are, are flying. Um, 15 matches, one thirteen, drawn two, scored 37 goals probably the most fun team in Europe to watch anywhere this season if you remember what they did to Liverpool in the Champions League in that first game in, in Naples um, just just destroyed them and you know when they went to Anfield for the second game didn't really sort of matter um, because they'd already qualified against Udinese at the weekend they only won 3-2 but they were 3-0 up um, in no time at all um, you, you've got players like Oshimen scoring a lot of goals for them at the moment it's going to. Look, Napoli have lost leads before um, when they've been top of the table, and they've been close about three times to winning the Scudetto in the last decade. And on each occasion, they've found a way not to win it. And they were the team of the first half of last season as well, and then went backwards in the second half of the season. So um, I think I mentioned there that people like Union Berlin or Union uh, Berlin, but in terms of actually sort of silky skills, you, you, you have to go a long way to see a better team than Napoli at the moment. So I hope they hold on, and they, they really should do. Um, got a really healthy advantage over like of Milan and Juventus at the moment. And for those of us that speak managerial talk, that uh, of course is Jose that manages Napoli, Ruby. Oof, not sure about that. Not sure about that. Mark Langdon, thank you very much. Breaks coming. And then we're going to chat to uh, Dan Martin on cycling next. Game on on 2FM. 
Now you're very welcome back to Game On with myself Shane Dawson and Ruby Walsh as we turn our attention to cycling in the company of Dan Martin who has uh, recently released a brilliant book with an even better name. It is Chased by Pandas which uh, recognises Dan Martin's career in cycling. Dan, before we dive into the uh, story um, for those who mightn't be aware of, of where the name came from because the 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 imagery on the front of the book is brilliant because you were um, literally being chased by a panda. <laughs> uh, uh, hi guys, um, great to be back on the show. But uh, yeah, it's obviously I what many people believe is my biggest achievement was winning the age best on the age, and then unbeknown to myself, uh, in the final kilometer, as I was going on to win the race some guy in a panda suit jumped over the barriers and started chasing me up the climb. And it kind of became this iconic image that meant uh, when we started working on the book, it kind of, the whole story of the, of the book revolves around my search for this panda guy, because then obviously the panda keeps reappearing during my career in, in random moments, generally successful moments, bizarrely, especially a bit of a spoiler, but, the uh, my final victory as a professional rider, which obviously at that point I didn't know it was my final victory. There was a panda on the side of the road, and it's these, and that's why we kind of it's just these, yeah, just completely bizarre, really. But then you also decided that you were going to go with colour on the front of the book. You were going to make this about how great cycling can be, not about just how difficult it is, how grim it is, how hard a sport it is. You wanted to to show the fun side and the enjoyment you got out of cycling as well. Yeah, I looked at a lot of not just cycling autobiographies, but sports books in general. And it's all very much, very serious, very my life, my career, my struggle. And it talks a lot about how difficult sport is. Whereas I had a, I had a ball. I loved every minute of my career, even though obviously I had a lot of injuries, crashes it, it, and the suffering that it goes into it. It was, my, I was fortunate enough in life to be able to do my passion for a job. So why wouldn't it be fun? And this, and this, that's what the book revolves around. It approaches a lot of topics that we're not really, we don't really talk about in when you're, when you're competing because yeah, the fears, but also the emotions and because you don't really have time to reflect at the moment as, as you're actually competing as you're an, as you're an athlete. So, but yeah, obviously the bright colors on the book, it was just really something and the, and not the Panda title as well. It was, I tried to make as much fun out of what is a very serious sport at most times, sports spirit serious, right? And for my, my point of view, it's always sports being sports and entertainment business. So, and that's what the idea of the book was as well. Sport is entertainment. It is a business. You say it's fun. You followed your dad, Neil Martin into it, but you say it, it wasn't a dream or a goal. You being a cyclist was just a fact. I think it shows a well, a strong inner belief that I had from a young age that I can't even begin to explain because here you had this 12-year-old boy at school who hadn't even begun to ride a bike, basically. Of course, I'd ridden around the, street, the town streets and, and whatnot, but I hadn't even competed at this stage. And when asked what career I was going to have at school... I was going to be a professional cyclist and was met by this, the, this laughter almost. And I think it obviously comes back to my uncle being obviously Stephen Roach as well. And like Lawrence, my uncle also being professional. It was almost like the family trade. <laughs> it was always, it was almost normal to become a Tour de France rider, you know? So, it, and I think that really gave me this belief and this, 
that's also where I wanted to go with the book. It was to inspire the next generation. The fact that I think often top sportsmen are put on a pedestal. We're kind of you. You're seen as superhuman, and and especially in cycling, now as a robot. And like, but generally, just normal guys that got very lucky to find the one sport or the one talent they had, and really managed to take advantage of it and get to the top of their sport. Both the physical and mental endurance of cycling is just ridiculous, um, you know, looking from the outside in. But how much added mental pressure was that then for you? You mentioned your uncles and indeed your father as well, who who um, was uh, in cycling as well. Like how much added pressure was to, to continue the family name and, and have all of that behind you? I never felt it was pressure. I just believe it was an incredible support network behind me that during all the tough times and obviously you know, the book follows that roller coaster track through my career where I discuss a lot about the pressures involved and how that affects your results because you just feel this weight on your shoulders and it, it never really came from a family background it was more the family presence was more always supportive because I knew that I had people behind me that understood they didn't I didn't have my dad asking oh why didn't you win today because that's exactly the question as an athlete you don't want to hear because you're the one that wants to win more than anything, you know, and, and it's not through lack of trying. And it really, yeah, it, it's, it really, I think the book really challenges that psychological approach and how difficult it is to find that balance between confidence and having that support network and how the, obviously you're thrust into these team environments that don't really understand how to deal with certain individuals and it's it's a learning process always that process of adaption that's not really understood and i do think sport psychology in sport is massively massively underrated you put every chapter into a category almost and you relate them all to fear the fear of being a leader the fear of descending the fear everything comes back to what most normal people feel about ev- uh, lots of things in everyday life, that little bit of fear that holds everybody back. And you categorise every chapter in fears. Which was your biggest fear to overcome? I think it changes during my career. I think it's, obviously as you get older, you get more you get more conscious of the fear of falling and, and getting injured. And that was definitely something that led to my retirement decision. It started the wheels turning as far as that process because I had a bad fall in the Dauphiné in 2020. And I, uh, I, like, I basically went over the handlebars and landed on my bum and lost feeling in my legs for probably like, it was nothing, probably two seconds. But it just made me think, you know, it was like, wow, it had that, it felt like an eternity. And it, it's when you really feel like that delicate, balance that you're on in life and in sport and you've been so successful and it could be taken all like that it cannot it not be taken away from you but it's it's we're it's dangerous sport and it was becoming in my eyes more and more dangerous and so yeah that that fear was definitely one but obviously it does i think the book does challenge that concept of the fear of failure that is not often talked about and we're not allowed i think in society in general it's drilled out of us not to discuss fear because we it's seen as a weakness and that's i did notice that towards the end of my career as far as you start talking about well that was really dangerous and people start saying especially on social media and even among tv commentators commenting that well you should just stop them because you're paid enough you should just suck it up and deal with the risks and it's a little bit it was hard to take it was like well and that's what kind of led to this fear concept within the book because 
So well, why why is it such a bad thing to discuss fears? Because I'm sure that the 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 twelve year old riding down a downhill at home sometimes he gets scared and it's okay to be scared it's it i wanted to really deal with that concept that everybody gets scared at some point whether it's scared of winning or crashing or or failure or or even doping as we discussed it's it's a it, it is okay to be afraid at some some point there, look there's loads of fears in there and you're dead right the 12 year old riding down the hill touching on the brakes he touches on the brakes because of fear it, it, it's in everybody but as professionals you're not really supposed to talk about it the fear of losing the fear of winning. How did you overcome both of those? I think I had a natural ability to kind of deal with the pressure most of the time, but then it's those external sources and those people around you that really put the put the pressure on you and begin to make you understand the pressure. If you're if you feel that the people around you have confidence in you, you're unbeatable. Whereas if you feel that they start to doubt you or they start to put you saying things like you have to win today, it's, it makes you realize the enormity of what, of, because as a cyclist, obviously it's seen as a team sport because we compete in teams, but we're essentially individuals out there and you're an individual that as the 90 yard staff, the people working in the office at back in the, in the, and back at the team's base, the 30 riders, the, they're all relying on you as the team leader to win that race because that makes the happy the sponsors happy and that continues the team for the next year effectively in, so, in some cases and that's something that never really dawns on you during when you're racing because if it does then that's certain to affect results so that's really where it, it's dealing with those pressures and obviously i think yeah my own inner self-confidence really helped me through my career with that and and allowed me to uh kind of put it to the back of my mind a lot of the time and that's uh, all of these fears, you do just end up pushing them down inside you as far as possible. And uh, whether that's healthy or not, I'm not. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, but yeah, obviously everybody deals with them differently. And this is that it's that key support network around you that uh, that and the psychological part that really makes a difference between the very top riders and uh, and the guys who finish second and third. And obviously, I was guilty of finishing second and third a lot. I know you mentioned in the book and, and it really kind of hit me through when I was reading it that like it's honest it's raw it's different and you mentioned to be successful in this sport you have to be crazy not brave but mad courage is about overcoming fear while madness stems from the absence of fear the riders who love descending also love falling but but given all the pressures and you mentioned that support ne- network the distractions of the doping allegations going on in the sport while you're partaking, the restrictions on your diet and what you eat. And I know you mentioned without proper food, you'd feel rubbish on the bike. So you had to, you had to go all in. Like how difficult were those demands and, and how concerned are you now that you've stepped out of the sport professionally and that uh, you've retired? How concerning do you feel the demands are now on new riders taking up the sport? That, that's part of the reason why I stepped away and I've seen it across many of the sports that I've got friends involved in and the whole sporting world has become super professional you can like, it's not that it wasn't professional before but the every, everybody's pushing the limits of competitiveness now and science sports science nutrition and that's where the cycling has just gone to this extreme level whereby you and I you can't really live a normal life. Whereas five years ago, I lived I led a relatively normal life. I could, I didn't really go on training camps. I ate normally. Like I could, obviously I ate a lot of pasta and rice and, but I was never starving myself. I was never, I, I would, we'd have 
a couple of glasses of wine at dinner the week before the Tour de France, like before I left and stuff like that. You know, it wasn't, I was never super serious. Whereas now the sport has just gone high. Every, every little box is ticked. Like I get a prescription for my training for every single day and exactly what to do. And whereas 10 years ago, I just get a note from my coach saying, go out and ride your bike for five hours. Enjoy yourself. Whereas now it would be five hours with, and there'd be 15 different types of efforts of different variations and different cadences and power. And it would all be, and I think, yeah, I, how I don't see the riders now because they're not as in control. Are they in Like, are they really, is it sustainable? Because that's why I stopped. Because for me last year, I did everything I could to be competitive and I was competitive. I was, but I felt like one, it wasn't as enjoyable and two, it wasn't sustainable. Like I was just beginning to hate riding my bike because I'd wake up in the morning until, oh, I have to go training there because I have to do these efforts. It wasn't, oh, the sun's out, I'm going to go ride my bike. And that's that's the fine line. It's very, very fine. But the thing is, we have a lot of riders now that are entering into the sport who have already, they've grown up in this environment and this mentality. And so perhaps it is more sustainable for them. And but I still don't believe you're going to see riders like myself and like Nicholas Roach, my cousin, who are doing 15, 16 year long careers. That's, I don't believe that's going to happen anymore. So there's no part of you thinks, I wish all of that was there when I was 12, 13, 14, 15. How good I could have been if all of this military like precision was involved. Is there any part of you think maybe it would have suited me when I was younger? Oh, definitely. You know, I mean, I'd, Obviously, I do wonder how good I could have been with the knowledge that I have now. But yeah, but at you the same time, the knowledge I, then either. Exactly, and nobody else did. <laughs> that's the thing. I think that's why. Like, it's. We, I was very fortunate to be in the teams that I was in because I do believe that at Garmin we had we were ahead of the game as far as knowledge goes. And looking back, we were like, I was doing stuff then as far as nutrition and training, and I didn't know why we were doing it, but. In later years, I look back and I think, "Well, wait a minute, we were doing that ten years ago. Like that's that's a like that's why we were winning, <laughs> you know." So it's kind of that we were definitely ahead of the game. So I was fortunate in that respect. And having passed to other teams, obviously like UAE, who were even though I was there four or five years after Garmin, they were still behind where Garmin were four years previous in their mentality and their approach to the sport. So yeah, I do consider myself fortunate. But yeah, I mean, the important thing for me is I enjoyed every minute of my sporting career and so it's hard to have any regrets well Dan I enjoyed every minute of reading the book unfortunately I would love to stay chatting for many many um, more hours but that is where we have to leave it my final question you know in the last chapter you ponder uh, and you wait in vain to someday track down that stranger dressed up as a panda and you might share a Belgian beer and you can tell him we had a good laugh thank you so I have to ask has this man been tracked down yet no, he hasn't. Oh. But we're we're tentatively planning because it's the tenth <laughs> it's the tenth anniversary of my victory at Liège next year. Believe it or not, and uh, we're tentatively planning like a with, together with Belgian TV a, a bit of a search. But he's probably he's probably scared to get arrested or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dan, I hope the book sales go well for you, and it is a great read for anyone looking for something for Christmas. Shane, thanks a million for your company this evening. I'm hoping Better De Silva is up next because it's not on the end of the running order. But um hope you enjoyed the show. Good night, folks. He is indeed. Bye. RTE 2FM.